Thank you, band. Thank you for leading us this morning. Well, we have been in the book of Acts. Last week we were in Acts chapter 23. We found, we found Paul in the city of Jerusalem preaching things that a lot of people did not like. They seize him, arrest him. He stands before the Sanhedrin. He gets backhanded in the mouth. But then he throws this grenade called the resurrection between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they start fighting like two pit bulls over a bone about this topic that they vehemently disagreed about. And at that, the Roman commander, knowing Paul was a Roman citizen, says, I need to get this guy out of here because they're about to tear him apart. So they take Paul to the barracks, which is where we pick up our reading today in Acts chapter 23, starting in verse 12. And it's quite a bit of reading, but we start in verse 12. The next morning, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and the elders and said, We have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petitioned the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets here. But when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul, the prisoner, sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside and asked, what is it you want to tell me? He said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them because more than 40 of them are waiting to ambush for him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are ready now, waiting for your consent to their, to their request. The commander dismissed the young man and cautioned him, don't tell anyone you have reported this to me. Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide mounts for Paul that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. He wrote a letter as follows, Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, Governor Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and they were about to kill him, but I came with my troops and rescued him for I learned that he is a Roman citizen. I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of the plot to be carried out against this man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. So the soldiers carrying out their orders took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris. The next day, they let the cavalry go with him, 
while they returned to the barracks. When the cavalry arrived at Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from. Learning that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. It's amazing the difference that $45 can make. And no, this is not a charity pitch, inviting you to get behind some calls for the price of a cup of coffee per day. But $45, a matter of $45 can literally change the trajectory of your life, which is something we learn from a story of a young man named Matthew. Matthew was the next to the youngest of his family, number 14 out of 15 siblings, growing up in poverty in the foothills of southern Ohio. And in the year and a half after graduating from high school, he held a number of jobs, but he finally found himself with a pretty good paying job at a shoe company. But unfortunately, after a few months, the shoe company went bankrupt and the business closed and Matt had to find a new job. And of course, this was during a time of economic downturn during the Carter administration, so he found it nearly impossible to find a job. So he figured his best bet was to learn some employable skill by joining the United States Air Force. So on Valentine's Day of 1977, a week after his 20th birthday, he said goodbye to his sweetheart, Tina, and boarded a bus in Portsmouth, Ohio, headed to basic training in San Antonio, Texas. Well, toward the end of basic training, his first assignment kind of began to take shape. His superiors came to him and said, you know, Matt, based on your test scores, we think you would be good for cryptology, you know, working with Morse code and Morse systems. So we intend to send you on an 18-month remote assignment on a mountaintop in Turkey. And this is top secret, so you're going to need top secret clearance. And so Matt, I mean, he wasn't overly excited about this idea, as he had intended to marry Tina very soon, and this being a remote assignment, she would not be able to go with him. But he was willing to do whatever they told him. So he starts answering questions to get top secret clearance, and within the first five questions, they begin to ask him about his debts. They ask, are you late on any payments? And given that he had had such a hard time previously to this finding a job, it just so happened that he was one month late on making a $45 car payment on a golden Buick LeSabre that he attained as a result of an accident. That's another story. But because of this late $45 car payment, he was not able to get top secret clearance. Because apparently in the eyes of the Air Force, this type of thing would make you vulnerable or perhaps susceptible to accepting a bribe from somebody with bad intentions. And we can't have this with, for people with top secret clearance. And so he was not able to go to Turkey. Now a few other options came up, but what eventually happened is that he was sent to Lowry Air Force Base in Denver, Colorado, where he would work in logistics inventory management, things like that. 
And so while at Lowry, he was able to begin to collect his Air Force pay, continue to make those car payments, and eventually went to the BX and bought an engagement ring for Tina, which he would send to her in the mail. And they would be married that June. While at Lowry, he happened to be at the right place at the right time for someone to take notice of him and say, hey, you, you look like you're in pretty good shape, relatively handsome guy. You seem to fit the profile of someone we would like to send to do this job at the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs. And so for three years, Matt, and with his new wife Tina, went to Colorado Springs where he worked logistics. But he, if you asked him, he would say, I basically played softball for three years. And he got really good at softball. But after those three years, he decided to get a different type of training. He wanted to go into computer programming, which was not an option for him when he first signed up. So the Air Force sent him for a hot and sticky summer in Biloxi, Mississippi, where he would get computer programming training and then receive his next assignment for computer programming at a hospital at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton. Now remember, had Matt had those $45 and made that car payment, he ends up going to Turkey, and his career trajectory takes a completely different path, and more than likely, he does not end up at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton. I mean, do you see? And if Matt never ends up at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, then he never has a house built on five acres in Cedarville. And if he and his family never end up in Cedarville, then his son never meets and befriends a girl in Cedarville named Sarah, who would years later invite him to a gathering that would become Apex Community Church. And if he never befriends her and gets that invitation, then you're listening to somebody else's sermon today. And perhaps by the end of the sermon, you wish that you could borrow Dr. Emmett Brown's DeLorean <laughs> and go back in time and loan my father those $45. <laughs> my children would be disappearing from photographs and everything. But perhaps some of you might be helped by something today. Or maybe you've been helped or encouraged by anything I've said in my time preaching here. And if that's the case, then you can thank God that in the winter of 1977, my father did not have $45 for his card payment. And that God works all things, even the Carter administration, for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. But let me ask this, though. Let me, let's think about this. Is, is my being here, do you think that's just how things happened? And is that random? Is it an accident? Is that just how the atoms bounced? Or consider this. Is it a mere coincidence that years ago, when Apex was looking for a new preaching lead, we partnered with this company to help us cast our nets wide, and in return we happened to get this application of someone who had never heard of us, but someone whose books many of us had been reading and discipleship ideas we had been employing, a guy named Mike Breen. Is that a coincidence? Or is there perhaps some divine intention, some sort of plan? Is that God's providence, his leading and directing of history? What about you? 
What about your being here today? First of all, why are you in Dayton? Is that because of some job opportunity or some you know, family history? Or do you think there's a higher purpose for you being right here in the city? Why are you at this church? Did you print off a picture of all the viable churches in the Dayton area, tape them to your wall, and throw a dart? The Proverbs say that the lot is cast, but every decision comes from the Lord. It's something to think about, isn't it? I think we see a matter of God's providence in the passage we read here in Acts 23. Although providence nor any work of God is mentioned by name, his fingerprints are all over it. We have this group of 40 Jews who seem to be zealous for the things of God and certainly zealous for the law of God, and they involve the Sanhedrin who were meant to uphold the law of God, and they want to kill Paul. And we see how the story goes. They call a curse upon themselves, literally an anathema upon themselves, saying we will neither eat nor drink until Paul is dead. And of course, we see how the story goes, but do you think any of those men let themselves starve to death? <laughs> I highly doubt it. I'm sure there was some sort of rabbinical loophole that got him off the hook. But notice this, though. It's, it's a bit ironic that these men, again, zealous for the things of God and God's law, involving the Sanhedrin, and yet the thing they intended to do was in violation of God's law. Let's bring him out on the pretext of further questioning him. That's bearing false witness. That's against the law of God. And why do we want to do that? So we can kill him. Is there a top 10 that says, thou shalt not kill? I mean, so to, in their mind, upholding the law of God, they have to violate it. But I guess to them, the means or the ends justified the means. But what foils this plan? What foils this conspiracy? Well, we're told that the son of Paul's sister, his nephew, one of the only times we read about Paul's family in the scriptures, just so happened to be in Jerusalem and just so happened to overhear this plot so he can report it to Paul. Let me ask you this question. Did Paul just get lucky with these lottery kind of odds? Or do you suppose it's more about the providence of God situating and having the right person at the right place at the right time? What do you think? I can't not see the hand of God here. And what is the result of this? And perhaps what is the reason of this? I mean, of course, this, the young man goes and talks to the commander. The commander then provides uh, protection and even a ride for him to the next place. But what could be the reasoning for this? Well, we read in verse 11, which was right before the passage we read today, that God stood before Paul. He encouraged him and said, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify about me in Rome. So God intends for Paul to go to Rome. But yet when God notices this conspiracy, he's not in his heavens going, oh no. <laughs> what? Oh no, they're going, to, they're going to ruin my plans. No. When God has an intention, he's going to deal with the obstacles too. So Paul intends, God intends for Paul to go to Rome, 
But notice also this. In Acts chapter 9, God says to a man named Ananias about Paul that this man will be my chosen instrument to testify about me before the Gentiles and their kings, their rulers, their governors. And where does Paul go next after he is you know, rescued by his nephew here? He goes to Governor Felix. Now, if Paul was just some random street corner preacher in Jerusalem that everyone was ignoring, he never gets the audience with these rulers. So this, this chaos around him, this kind of arrest, this being taken into custody, and this rescue are the means by which he stands before this ruler, Governor Felix. And from Felix, Governor Festus and King Agrippa. And from there, they sent him to Rome. Some of the things that seemed to be a threat to Paul were the means by which he would fulfill God's plans and purposes to stand before Gentile rulers and go to Rome. Now, if you think big picture, this is also good news for us. Because if Paul, you know, dies here, you know what Paul has not done yet? He has yet to write his prison epistles. He has yet to write Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and Philemon. Some of these books containing some of the highest Christology, the clearest picture of Christ in the New Testament, and that's good for us. Certainly many have come to faith in the Lord Jesus through the testimony and witness of these writings. You know, our, our, if, if these books had not been written, our good friend Jason Zastro would not have his back pocket sermon. You know what a back pocket sermon is, right? It's it's a sermon that you don't even have to prepare for. It's, it's in your heart so that when all the other preachers are sick, <laughs> you're ready to go at a moment's notice. And Jason's back pocket sermon is Ephesians chapter 1. So Paul's rescue here by the means of his nephew is good for even us. Now, we've seen that God is capable of other means of rescue. We, we've seen earlier in the book of Acts, God walk Peter out of jail with an angel. We've seen God, as Paul is in a jail in Philippi, God sent an earthquake to release Paul from that prison. But here there's no angel, there's no earthquake. It's means that seem to be much more ordinary, much more behind the scenes. And yet, here is God using the means of his nephew being at, Paul's nephew being at the right place at the right time. Someone who would happen to be pro-Paul one of the few pro-Paul people in Jerusalem happened to overhear this secret plot and conspiracy. But I think it's also important here to notice the response of Paul. That when he hears this, Paul does not tell his nephew, eh, you know, well, I mean, God intends to send me to Rome, so, you know, let's not worry about it. He'll figure out some way. You know, we don't need to do anything about this. It'll take care of itself. No. Paul believed in God's providence, but it did not make him passive. And it's very important to recognize a, a, a thing that I believe Scripture affirms. Scripture affirms, I think, both the sovereignty and the providence of God, his directing of history, and human freedom and responsibility, that our choices actually matter. We're not robots just doing you know, whatever God's programmed us to do. It teaches both. 
You know, in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 4, the church is praying and it's talking about how Herod and Pilate and the people of Jerusalem were conspiring against the Lord Jesus, which set up the events of the crucifixion. But they said, yet it was according to the plan and purposes of God. Herod and Pilate were making free choices that they are responsible for, and yet somehow meeting up with the plan and purposes of God. And if you want to get detailed on that, I'm not going to do that for you today. But Scripture seems to affirm both God's providence and human freedom and responsibility. This story reminds me a little bit of the story we read about in the book of Esther. Not only because in the book of Esther there just so happens to be a foiled assassination plot, you know, two of the, the king's guards, the Persian king Ahasuerus or King Xerxes, two of his guards are plotting to assassinate him, and yet there just so happens to be a Jew named Mordecai who overhears this plot and sends word to the king. So there's this foiled assassination plot, just like there is here in Acts 23. But not only is Mordecai the right person at the right place at the right time, the same is true of his cousin, his cousin who he raises, an orphan girl named Hadassah. She enters this weird beauty pageant that King Xerxes holds, and she ends up winning it. And he's so taken by her that he makes her his wife, and she from then on is called Queen Esther. And she happens to be the right person at the right place at the right time because there, become, there, there begins to be this plot against the Jews. A man named Haman sees Mordecai not willing to bow down to him. He's like kind of this prime minister, second in command to the king. Mordecai won't bow down to Haman, so Haman is mad. He decides a plot against not only Haman, but against all the Jews. And so Mordecai goes to Esther and appeals to her, go talk to the king and let him know that, one, you are a Jew. I mean, you've kept your identity a secret for now, but like, let him know this and, and you know, try to rescue our people. Esther's a bit reluctant because you could not simply enter the inner courts of the king uninvited. If you did, you are taking your life into your hands. You could be killed if the king does not extend his golden scepter to you. So she's reluctant, but Mordecai says to her, look, we can be delivered in some other way, but could it be that you are in your royal position for such a time as this? Isn't it worth it to find out whether or not you are the right person at the right place at the right time? And so Esther bravely goes. The king holds out his golden scepter to her, sparing her, and she invites him to a number of banquets. <laughs> and eventually at one of these banquets, she says who she is and about this plot against the Jews. And the king is then angry against Haman. And in the words of Shakespeare, Haman is hoisted by his own petard. Just a fancy way of saying the device with which he intended to harm others turned out to be his own doom. These all sorts of reversals that we see in the book of Esther. And so, and as a result, though, the, the Jews were able to defend themselves and they were saved. And so not only does Esther remind me of Acts 23 because of this foiled assassination plot, it's also because there's this hiddenness 
to the working and, and the plan and the providence of God. See, in the section of Acts 23 we just read, we don't read about any of God's work. We don't read God's name, but his fingerprints are all over it. And in the same way, do you know how many times the name of God is mentioned in the book of Esther? Not once. Not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. No mention of the Lord of hosts. He's not mentioned at all. And in fact, some, including Martin Luther, think that in part for this reason, perhaps Esther does not belong in the canon of Scripture. But I think actually this is a brilliant device by the author to get you to put things together and say, no, God's hand is all over this. Even if we don't mention him, his work in this situating things is so obvious, the way that he weaves things for the rescue of his people. It's clearly there. And so Esther and Mordecai, right people at the right place at the right time. Now, thinking again about Acts 23, specifically about Paul's nephew, you know, we don't even know his name. And there doesn't seem to be anything particularly special about him. There's, and what he does doesn't require a great amount of skill or talent or gifting. He's not fighting off a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. All he's doing is reporting the news. He's reporting what he's heard. And I think what that brings to mind is this, is this matter of ordinary faithfulness. Ordinary people practicing ordinary faithfulness can make such a huge difference. I have a few stories in this regard. The first is um, about a man named Edward Kimball. I've shared the story years ago, but nobody remembers it, I'm sure. Edward Kimball, you're not likely to read his name in any history books, but he was a Sunday school teacher in Massachusetts in the 1850s. And at one point, he had a pupil, a young man named Dwight, not a beet farmer. But Dwight, of Dwight, Edward Kimball said, I have met fewer people than he whose minds were as dark as his were. And I have never met anyone less likely to become a Christian. But one day, Edward went to visit Dwight at his job. He worked at a shoe store. He was stocking shelves. And Kimball began to share with Dwight God's love for him and what Jesus had done for him. And Dwight began to weep. And that day, he became a Christian. And eventually, Dwight would go on to become the most famous preacher of his time. We know him today as D.L. Moody, the founder of Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. Well, at the preaching of D.L. Moody, there's a young man named F.B. Meyer who, decided, who was inspired and decided to start a wide-reaching uh, preaching ministry himself. And at the preaching of F.B. Meyer, a college student named Wilbur Chapman came to faith. And eventually, as years go by, Wilbur Chapman himself becomes a preacher. And after a while, he hires an assistant who he would train in theology and how to preach. And this assistant was a former professional baseball player 
named Billy Sunday. And within his lifetime, his live audience reached beyond 100 million people. Well, Billy Sunday was once doing a revival in North Carolina, and he inspired a group of businessmen to form this sort of evangelical group who would begin their own revivals. And as this group of businessmen initiated their own revivals, they invited a preacher named Mordecai Ham. And at this event with Mordecai Ham, there was this 16-year-old lanky young man who was really at first reluctant to be there. But at the preaching of the gospel, he himself walked that sawdust road and believed in the Lord Jesus. And his name is Billy Graham, whose lifetime audience between live and over the radio was two billion people. Now, there's a million things that happened in the life of these men to shape them and to create these situations. But it all begins with the ordinary faithfulness of a Sunday school teacher in Massachusetts in 1855. That, one, that, that faithfulness was like this little pebble dropping into a lake and creating ripples for eternity. Now, if that doesn't inspire a number of us to partner with family ministry, I don't know what will. I mean, seriously, you could be, there could be gener- the next Billy Graham in generations because of your influence, of, of ordinary, practicing ordinary faithfulness. Next story is about our friend Ralph. He sits in the front row here every week. And you may have seen Ralph recently over the past few months with a neck brace. He's doing much better now, praise God. But now Ralph had to have a pretty significant neck surgery. And as he's there spending quite a bit of time in the hospital, there was a nurse came, and she would take care of his room. She would keep his room clean. And one day, Ralph said to her, hey, I I just want to say I really appreciate you keeping my room clean. And at hearing that, this nurse starts weeping. Because no one had ever thanked her before. I mean, now think about all the jobs that nurses do, things that I would be embarrassed to say from the stage, and it can feel like a thankless job. But in this moment, his appreciation for her, she felt seen. And of course, Ralph being Ralph, had a number of spiritual conversations with the nurses there during his time there. And I'm sure that Ralph would tell you today, like, he wouldn't choose the neck injury or the neck surgery, but he would tell you, look, wherever God wants to put me and however he wants to get me there, for whatever reason, I'm game. If you ever get a chance to talk to Ralph, ask him about the coincidences in his life. He'll, he'll have a number of them for you. Last story is a story about a woman named Christina Bennett. Christina Bennett was at church one day And someone came up to her and said, I think that God wants you to know something about something that remarkable that happened around the time of your birth. Like, I don't know what it is, but God wants you to know something that was remarkable about the time of your birth. And so Christina's like, okay. So she goes and asks her mom, mom, was there anything remarkable about the time of my birth? And her mom says, well... I think I might have seen an angel. (laughs) 
And she left it at that, you know, and she wouldn't say any more. She wouldn't say any more, so Christina let it go. But a few months later, she felt this question arising for her again and again still. She's like, ha, ah, I think I want to go back and talk to her. So she said, Mom, once again, is there anything more to that story? Can you please tell me what was remarkable about my birth? And her mom said, well, your father wanted me to have an abortion. So, so I went. I paid for it. They got me into counseling, even though the counselor basically didn't give me any counseling. They just said, yeah, this sounds like the right thing for you. They put me in a white gown, and they just had me wait in the hallway. And while she was waiting in the hallway, she started weeping. And suddenly, there was a janitor, a janitor who was an elderly African-American woman who came up to her and said, honey, do you want to have this child? Christina's mother said, yeah. And she said, then God will give you the strength to have this child. And at that, Christina's mother decided to get up and go, that she would keep her. So she started collecting her things, and just then the doctor came out and called her name. It was her turn. So she follows the doctor back to the room. There was still blood on the floor from the previous appointment. And she said to him, I don't want to do this. The doctor said, calm down. You're just nervous. She said, no, no, I really don't want to do this. And then the doctor started yelling at her. You've already paid for it. You're not leaving this place until you get this done. And Christina's mother ran. And this was in Hartford, Connecticut in 1981. And today, Christina is an advocate for the unborn, that they would have the same opportunity of life that she has. Ordinary faithfulness from an ordinary person making a huge difference. Now, when it comes to the providence of God, I think it's important that we also notice and perhaps call out that even though they say hindsight is 2020, that isn't always true when it comes to the providence of God, meaning we don't always know why the things in our life happen the way that they do, right? We don't always get to a point where we say, oh, that's why I didn't have $45 at the time, right? Look how things turned out. Look at what God did. Look at what God used. No, for every, for every Joseph, there's a Job, what do I mean by that? Well, the story of Joseph, he goes through all these difficult trials in his life, but at the end of the story, he recognizes it. He tells his brothers, what you intended for evil, God meant for good. I can see the point. I can see the point. Even though you all are responsible, I can see what God was doing through this to orchestrate this for the greater good and the salvation of many. So he could see the point in it, but at the same time, we have Job. Job was a righteous man who suffered greatly, and God permitted it. And even though at the end, Job gets you know, basically everything back and, and then some, the, the question through the book lingers, and we never get an answer for it. Why? We're never given a reason for Job's suffering. 
What we do get at the end is a confrontation between Job and God where God answers him through the whirlwind and says to him, Job, this is above your pay grade. You don't have the capacity to understand this. You don't have the vantage point. Were you there when I created the foundations of the world? Do you understand how complicated everything is and how everything fits together? And Job did not respond by saying, well, that's not good enough. You need to tell me why. No, Job says, I see you. I have heard you. I I have heard what you said. This is way above me. I can't even begin to understand this. So I repent in dust and ashes. Say no more. We're not given a reason why. So for every Joseph, there's a Job. But we know it's there. God doesn't waste anything. Elizabeth Elliot may offer some help here. She was a, um, her and her husband Jim were missionaries to the native tribes in South America. And one day, Jim and four others, I'm sure many of you know the story, Jim and four others go to make contact with this tribe and they end up getting killed on the spot. They end up getting speared to death. And even though, as I understand it, many of the tribe did come to faith in Jesus, we shouldn't always expect it to be that tidy. We shouldn't always be able to expect to be able to look back and say, oh, that's why. She says that, this is Elizabeth Elliot, we know that time and again in the history of the Christian church, the blood of the martyrs has been its seed. We are tempted to assume a simple equation here. Five men died. This will mean X number of Weyarani Christians. Perhaps so, perhaps not. God is God. I dethrone him in my heart if I demand that he act in ways that satisfy my idea of justice. It is the same spirit that taunted, if thou be the son of God, come down from the cross. There is belief, even rebellion, in the attitude that says, God has no right to do this to five men unless. So here's a question. Do you have to understand God in order to trust him? Do you have to understand everything about what God does in order to trust him and to know that he's good? And so let me say this, and it... um, and it hurts me just as much to say it than it is maybe for you to hear it. If you have to understand God to trust him, if everything he does has to make sense to you, if he has to meet your expectations, if, he, if you feel like he owes you an explanation, if he, if he has to fit within your logic and imagination, then your God is too small. Ouch, right? So as we move on to a time of uh, prayer and response and ministry, those are, th- these are questions I want us to think about. Is one, will you have your eyes and ears open and consider that it may be that you are the right person at the right place at the right time to practice ordinary faithfulness according to the plan of God? As you think about your life, is there somebody who needs you to stand up for them? Is there somebody who needs an encouraging word? 
And the next question is, do you trust God even if you don't always understand him? 